Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you via the Secret Library Podcast Patreon. You can check it out at patreon.com slash secretlibrary, where supporters get access to guests before the rest of the world knows who's coming on, and certain levels can submit questions to be asked on the show. This is episode 114. My guest this week is Diana Gabaldone. Diana Gabaldon is, of course, the author of the award-winning number one New York Times bestselling Outlander novels, described by Salon Magazine as, quote, the smartest historical sci-fi adventure romance story ever written by a science PhD with a background in scripting Scrooge McDuck comics, end quote. The series is published in 26 countries and 23 languages. Diana is currently serving as a co-producer and advisor for the popular Outlander TV series, which is based on her novels. She holds three degrees in science, zoology, marine biology, and a PhD in quantitative behavioral ecology, and spent a dozen years as a university professor with an expertise in scientific computation before beginning to write fiction. She has written scientific articles and textbooks, worked as a contributing editor on the Macmillan Encyclopedia of Computers, founded the scientific computation journal Science Software Quarterly, and has written numerous comic book scripts for Walt Disney. None of this has anything whatsoever to do with her novels, but there it is. Diana and her husband, Douglas Watkins, have three adult children and live mostly in Scottsdale, Arizona. I was delighted to have Diana on, not only to discuss the novel which she wrote the foreword for, which we will get to shortly, but also to talk about the complexities of history and bringing history into your writing. We talk about this today both from the side of discussing a historical document, which she wrote the foreword for and is coming out from Penguin shortly, but also in the context of writing about a historical time period, which she does for the Outlander books, and working with the tension between handling the cultural attitudes and norms of the time period she writes, which is mostly 1700s Scotland, and then into the US later in, later in her series, but also reconciling that with the very different cultural attitudes and norms of today, when she's writing and when people are reading the books. So if you've ever dabbled in the idea of historical source material or wanted to write historical fiction or have been reading original documents and wondering how to reconcile that with your writing process, this is the episode for you. We went straight to the source 
the expert who has a ginormous library on Scotland and other things for her series and is a prodigious researcher with a rigorous academic background and brings all of that to writing fiction, which is enormous fun to write, as she says, and also enormous fun to read. So I know you're going to love this conversation. Here we go with Diana Gabaldone. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. So it's interesting. We're going to talk today about the life and adventures of Joaquin Marietta, which was the first novel published in California, also the first that we know of to feature a Mexican-American hero, uh, written by John Rollin Ridge, and which you wrote the foreword for. Yes, that's right. (laughs) So I was very interested in a distinction that you made in your foreword that I thought was really important was the difference between as a reader encountering historical fiction that's been written in a different time period from which it's set and contemporary fiction that happens to have been written in a historical period that's different than the one in which you're reading it. And since this book was published in 1854, but written about events that took place between 1851 and 1853, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that, being yourself a writer who writes about historical periods that are different from the ones that you're living in. Right. Uh-huh. Well, it would be somewhat different, uh, given that uh, the, the life and times of Joaquin Marietta was, as you say, written uh, quite close to the events that it theoretically is describing. Uh, and so, you know, this would have been sensationalized reportage, essentially, or meant to be something along those lines. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, it was, it was for its day uh, a dime novel, as they might have said. In other words, it was meant to be exciting and adventurous and appeal to a broad popular audience. Um, it wasn't actually written with the intent of uh, historical accuracy. Uh, what right. I thought most interesting about that book, aside from the story itself, which is very, very readable and interesting, is the uh, the publishing background to it. You may have noticed that there's quite a long preface that explains where this book came from, uh, the personality of the man who wrote it, and his possible reasons for doing so. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was essentially intended to be, you know, more or less current events, but current uh, you know, the way that we might read a book about, say, the Manson murders or something like that from a sensationalized point of view. Uh, it wasn't intended to be, oh, you know, way back in the day, like 300 years ago, this happened. It was uh, much more contemporaneous to the people who would have been buying it at the time. It would just have been in a completely different cultural context. Now, cultural context is very important when you're writing uh, historical fiction. And these days, when we say historical, that basically means um, writing about a time that's more than 50 years from where we now are. So, you know, anything in the early 20th century would actually be historical fiction uh, for us. So, yeah, it's more commonly applied to things that go much further back. The thing, though, is that uh, the readers all, of course, are occupying uh, their own particular cultural context. And... uh, for them to make that shift into the context of the people in the historical fiction is what the challenge is, or one of the challenges for a writer of that. You have to make these people uh, understandable to uh, to modern readers. That is, you know, cause a sense of empathy and draw their circumstances sufficiently that a person can think, well, if I were in this situation, I would do X. Um, and uh, and you know, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't, but they have to at least be able to imagine that they would do X. And then if your character is doing Y, say, you have to provide enough explanation to make it clear why he would be doing Y. 
Now that explanation may just be that this is the way that it was commonly accepted to do things in that day, in which case you have to make that pretty clear. Um, you have a problem with readers who perhaps have not been very thoroughly educated in terms of history and don't quite grasp the idea that people from a significant historical distance didn't and don't think the way that they do. They're not exposed to the same uh, you know, political climate, for one thing, or to the same uh, daily life. What you do is establish a, a, a real cultural reality, something that people can identify with. Now, in terms of Joaquin Murrieta, as I said, that was more contemporaneous fiction. So while he was dealing with, uh, you know, um, theoretically Mexican bandits and the like, uh, he didn't need to establish much more than a very sketchy motive for what this man was doing because people would have understood, you know, the, the climate of, uh, you know, California as part of the wild frontier, um, outlawry as, uh, you know, more or less uh, – not a respectable way of life, but a common way of life. And uh, so you, you don't need to paint uh, very deep character motivations if uh, if you're dealing with a time that's fairly close to or at least recognizable to your readers. But the readers nowadays reading Joaquin Murrieta would uh, probably find it a little stranger. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a number of the things that, uh, that Joaquin does, uh, motives for, you know, say, killing certain people and holding others for ransom, things like that, uh, you know, these were just matters of practicality to him and probably would be accepted as such by the readers of the day, whereas readers nowadays would be going, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> well, it describes a particular kind of like vigilante justice that we see a lot in, I think, Westerns, which probably, you know, even if they were written later, were inspired by narratives like this. And we have the classic you know, Joaquin is fighting against his oppressor. And even though mm -hmm. that focus gets a bit lost in the story, which you definitely called out in your <laughs> forward, which I thought was fair. He spends a lot of time looting people, taking their money, taking their horses. But it isn't until about halfway through the book that he indicates that he's doing so for, you know, reasons to, I, I suppose it was revenge and vengeance against people who wronged him. And that he believes, you know, the entire sort of region of Southern California had wronged him and his people. But yep. it's an interesting thing to have this tension of portraying a very violent character and yet keeping the reader engaged. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like John Rollin Ridge makes some choices in order to do that. Like he kills a whole lot of people, but he does return. He insists on returning that damsel to her mother. He doesn't want to kill the ferryman because he believes he's an honest, hardworking person. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about that, like a violent character, but yet keeping him as a writer appealing or engaging to the reader, which it looks like John Rollin Ridge was trying to do. Uh, yeah. Well, he was writing for a popular market. You know, he had to make Joaquin um, at least minimally sympathetic or empathetic to people. So, you know, it's, it's the Robin Hood complex. So you can, you know, rob the sheriff of Nottingham, but if you have a damsel in your woods, you don't take improper advantage of her. You return her to her home uh, because you are, at basis, uh, a, uh, an honorable gentleman. You're just forced into this life of crime by, you know, external factors. And, you know, everybody can pretty much identify with that, you know, no matter how implausible <laughs> the general setup is. As noted, uh, he's uh, stealing people's horses, but then suddenly uh, uh, Ridge uh, 
reminds us that he's doing this because he's building up a vast army to go and, you know, throw the oppressors out of Southern California, reclaim the land for Mexico, uh, which he still considers it to be. And, you know, that's a reasonable control viewpoint. Um, however, uh, the writing goes no further than stealing the horses. You know, there's never any indication that he knows what to do with the horses once he's stolen them. <laughs> he's theoretically he stacking them in a box canyon somewhere, but, you know, no idea what, he, what who is guarding the horses while he is off with his little gang and, you know, who's feeding the horses. How is he managing this? What is he doing with the horses? Because this goes on for months and months when he's stealing horses and, you know, sending them off to this box canyon from which they're never heard of again. Nor do we ever get to the point where he actually does assemble an army um, since the, the um, vigilantes catch up with him before that. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's essentially an excuse for his behavior, so to speak, that makes us able to uh, sympathize with him to a, to a certain extent and not disregard him as, you know, a complete, uh, complete badnik. Yeah, exactly. It made me think a little bit about a similar... Um... I wondered if you thought about Jamie Fraser at all while you were reading this, because there were, it's the same century, completely different cultural background, but a character who is forced into being identified as a criminal who was thrashed by someone quite publicly and is trying to deal with another culture coming in and taking away land from his culture. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very old uh, storyline. You'll find it in a lot of uh, of uh, historical fiction, historical in both senses, uh, stories that were written during the time or roughly uh, close to the time. Actually, Jimmy Fraser is about 100 years earlier than uh, than Joaquin. But, uh, right. yeah, definitely similar uh, similar backgrounds there. It's just the degree to which you uh, choose to draw things like that. But it's establishing, you know, the, the sorts of factors uh, you know, a good story requires conflict is the bottom line. So you have to make it clear what your character's conflict is. And in this case, you know, having people who are trying to throw him off his land and or kill him is about as clear cut as it gets. Yeah, absolutely. So as someone who writes historical fiction, and I know from having heard you speak recently at the LA Times Festival of Books, that you have an amazing historical library. So I'm wondering... How do you recommend for people who are interested in writing fiction set in historical contexts, how they begin the process of researching, which may involve encountering documents like Life and Adventures of Joaquin Marietta, written closer to the time period in which they're writing? Mm -hmm. um, how do you recommend researching for this and reading that material in order to inform your own writing? Well, um, it's actually, you know, both very complex and very simple. Basically, you decide, what do I need to know to start with? And you don't have to, you know, make an enormous list and, uh, you know, know everything before you start. In fact, I strongly advise not doing that because I know way too many people who say, oh, I'm writing a historical novel. And I've been researching for the past 10 years, and when you ask how much of it they have written, they say, well, I don't know everything yet. I can't start writing until I know everything, which basically means they have no intention of ever writing this book. They're just interested in history, and this is an excuse. Um, no, I, uh, when I wrote Outlander, I didn't do any research to begin with. I uh, just began writing and figured that I would do the research as I went along. Um, I was a research professor. I knew how to look things up in the library, and the library was how we did it back in the old days prior to the Internet. 
So when I decided to set a book in Scotland in the 18th century, I went to the library, typed Highlands, Scotland's 18th, 18th century into the card catalog. It had just barely been electronicized at that moment and uh, came up with 38 references. I went to the shelf where these were, and here were 400 books on Scotland. So I just sort of strolled along and took out anything that looked interesting, you know, costumes, geography, language, history, etc. Uh, my rule of thumb for historical research and what to include is that I don't want to read it unless it's interesting. So, you know, if I'm looking at a very dry book that is obviously deeply scholarly and stuffed with interesting details, I may buy it and add it to my own library, but only to look things up in periodically. Um, I'm not going to read it cover to cover. And in fact, I don't read most of the stuff in my library cover to cover. I, you know, skim through a book to see what what kind of book it is, what kind of index does it have, what kind of notes, how is it laid out, you know, what kind of information would I find in this book. And then as I write, I will come to something that I need to know. Uh, for instance, I have an almanac of the American Revolution, which I go through, and it tells you all of the major and minor events of the American Revolution, where they happened and on which day. It has just a very brief uh, preface of what those events were. And so I use that kind of as a a hunting ground and say, well, oh, this interesting um, exploit happened on this particular day. Can I use that? Uh, yes, I can. It's close enough to where my characters might be in geographical terms. So now I can then go to the larger research uh, area, either my own collection or the vast resources that are available online these days, and uh, find out more. You know, perhaps it was a small battle, like the Battle of Waxhaws. Okay, there's virtually nothing written about the Battle of Waxhaws in uh, history books and not that much more online. But I do know a few things about it. And so I see, start looking for Waxhaws whenever I'm in, uh, in South Carolina in terms of, of the research and so forth. And I turn up little bits and pieces. And uh, something there will fascinate me. And I'll say, oh, this person was at the Battle of Waxhaws. I didn't know that. Uh, let me go back and see what his timeline was because he's an interesting person. And I would like my characters to run into him at the Battle of Waxhaws, but it would be better if they had met him somewhere else first. So where was he? And so I bring up you know, the Wikipedia on him and kind of get an idea of where he was at that particular time. It's, it's, it's pretty much you pick a, a, the end of a piece of yarn and pull, and you see what comes in. You may get a big tangle, and you have to find your way through it. But you know, you, this is how you find things. You just pull things, and they come toward you. Um, generally, there's, I mean, there's search methods and so forth. And a research librarian is extremely good at helping you find the more obscure things that you need. I uh, had the benefit of being a university professor at the time, so I had access to the university library, and via that, to the entire international library loan system. Nowadays, you don't need that so much because you have the internet. If I need to know what, uh, say, Thomas Paine looked like, I can find an image of him. There's only one, by the way. <laughs> so I was pretty oh, safe in, in describing him on that ground. So you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just what do you need to know and where do you go to find that out? In many cases, where do you go to find that out is as simple as Google, or at least that's where you start. You know, something comes up, and then it causes you to ask another question. But you don't have to know everything before you start writing a story. Now, again, this depends a little bit on the focus of the story as well. If the entire book, say, or the entire story is dealing with a particular battle, uh, say Richard Ketchum's uh, book, which is not fiction, but, uh, but it's very well written, uh, called Saratoga. This has all to do with the Battle of Saratoga. So he's dealing with stuff all around the battle, with timelines coming in and out of the battle, with all of these important and interesting people who were there. So he needed a lot of biological or biographical information on all the people who were there, Benedict Arnold, for one, and uh, 
and uh, Daniel Morgan, other type people like that. Uh, but he also needed a lot of stuff about the physical battle and for which there are many, many resources. Uh, the Osprey Men-at-Arms books are very good for laying out battles in tactical detail. Um, so basically, you know, it's just what do you need to know? <laughs> you, can, you can find out almost anything. And if by chance you look and you look and you look and you cannot find out something you need to know, you guess. And they're at so what a friend of mine calls historical serendipity, which is if you've been working with this group of people in this cultural milieu and context for a long time, you become familiar both with the resources that they had and with the way that they thought. And so when you have to make a guess, it will be an educated guess. You'll think if I was this person, I was living here, I would be thinking like this. This is what it would occur to me to do. And much more often than not, if you make that kind of guess somewhere down the line, you will run into uh, – into uh, an actual situation. You'll have your question answered and you will have been right in your guess. That must be really satisfying. Well, that brings me to my next question, which was something you referenced in the foreword, which was the pressure that contemporary authors feel to make a historical context kind of conform to the attitudes of the readers who are reading it and how it's a bit of a challenge to... Um, I guess uh, the way I would put it is to how to write about history when it isn't pretty or sanitized the way you want it to be. You reference that and that John Rollin Ridge, as writing someone about, he's writing about his own period of time, is sort of exempt from that and uses the attitudes that are his own. But I'm wondering how you tackle that in your writing mm -hmm. and yes. how re reading historical um, pieces like this one help you to kind of see the difference between today's attitudes and the ones that came before. Uh, well, that's why if you're writing historical fiction, you read everything, uh, <laughs> you read everything pertaining to your period, and most of all, you read uh, stuff that was generated during your period. You look for the primary sources for newspapers, journal entries, uh, letters, because these were written by people living in that time, and uh, the way people write reveals a great deal about who they were and what they thought whether they're writing specifically about a situation that you need to know or not. It will tell you a lot about what kind of person this was, what kind of beliefs were accepted in those days, what people held as, you know, uh, virtuous values, what they uh, denigrated or put aside, and, you know, just how they went about leading their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, now, in terms of writing historical fiction, my personal view is that uh, the main point of writing a book is not to avoid offending people. <laughs> and I could care less, you know, whether people get upset that people in my books do, in fact, hold uh, attitudes uh, common to uh, to the time in which the book is set. For instance, uh, there is a Chinese character in the third book, Voyager, and uh, the characters in my story, one of whom is from the 1940s, England, and the other of whom is from, uh, you know, the, the mid-1700s, Scotland. Both of them refer to him without hesitation as a Chinaman. Okay, you did that today, and people would just go ballistic and hop up and down. Some of them do anyway, because they're like, oh, you can't do that. And I said, but they did, you know, that was a totally acceptable way to refer to a resident of China. They would have assumed Englishman, Frenchman, Chinaman, why is this a problem? And, and you know, at that point, uh, they didn't encounter uh, many Chinese people, nor apparently did uh, anybody register objections at that point. Um, but uh, people who have never been exposed to, uh, you know, the change in cultural attitude and terminology and so forth, they react as, you know, um, People who watch CNN on every day do, as in, you know, this is the only thing, everybody thinks this, you know, and how can anyone possibly not think this? And if they don't think this, well, that's terrible. And, you know, these are not the people I'm writing for. 
Right, exactly. I mean, that comes up as well in the life and adventures of Joaquin Marietta in sort of people casually noted as various, you know, residents of various countries and how they were treated differently as a result of being part of various cultural groups. Um, yes, which is clearly um, a result of the attitudes of that time period. Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, well on into the early 20th century, too. <laughs> it's only, I'd say, in the last 30 or 40 years that that's actually become objectionable on a, you know, on a broad culture-wide basis. Do you think that people object to seeing it in books because they don't want to deal with the ramifications of what it means, that that's how it was before? It's almost like presenting this in a novel, then you have to think about it, and people are uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and they don't want to think about those topics. Yes, I think that has something to do with it. But most people who actually read historical fiction do so in part because it was different. They're interested in what, what things were different in the in the past. Um, other people read uh, historical novels uh, just because it strikes them as a, an exotic or romantic setting, you know, the past. These people uh, really don't like it if you uh, have which you might call you know, cockroaches in the soup, um, because they don't know anything <laughs> about that at all, you know, whereas that was a common occurrence, you know, in, in these uh, various times. But there, in that case, those particular novels, which are, you know, there's nothing at all wrong with writing this way, because it's done for a specific purpose to a specific market. But people who write that sort of novel um, do not usually go into what the actual realistic uh, uh, cultural assumptions of that time would have been. Um, it's it is you know sanitized and it is uh, you know sort of fairy tale essentially. But you know that's what that sort of book is meant to be. So it's you know it's not a problem. It's only a problem if someone picks up a book expecting it to be you know that sort of book and discovers that it's not. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, I think it's it's an interesting thing too. Whenever you're tackling historical periods or cultural contexts, um, what do you think? a novelist's responsibility is in documenting a period in history. I mean, John Rollin Ridge was clearly trying to entertain and to tell a swashbuckling good story based on some crazy news stories. But um, for someone writing now about another historical time period, do you think that novelists carry a responsibility to tell that story accurately as best that they can? Well, I do, uh, but, you know, making exceptions for the aforementioned sort of historical novels, um, you know, historical romance, and I'm not saying there are not accurate historical romances, because there are. I can give you a list of uh, excellent authors who write them, but not all of them do. Um, In terms of historical novel, uh, well, my obligation is to the book, essentially, uh, not to anything else. But that said, uh, part of my obligation to the book lies in getting the details as um, as accurately as is possible. Now, bear in mind that history is not actually what happened. It's what somebody wrote down. Therefore, what you're writing about may not, in fact, be what happened, but you're making your best uh, best effort to render that. This is also why you read widely and read multiple sources, because you begin to see where um, stories overlap or were plainly drawn from an earlier story. Uh, another thing to draw from this is that journalists are often lazy and do not <laughs> do their own original research. They will just rewrite a piece from someone else. And you see that a lot in the uh, the 19th century press, especially, but, you know, it goes all the way up to today as well. Um, so yeah, that's why you're looking for the primary sources for someone who was actually an eyewitness at this battle and wrote a letter home to his wife, you know, telling her how shocked he was at what happened and giving details and so forth. As far as historical people, though, now that's a different thing. If you are, in fact, using historical 
personages in your book, I think you do have some obligation to uh, to that person. Now, how deep that obligation goes may depend uh, on what's available about them. Um, some people you have little more than a name and the place where they did something or other, in which case, you know, if you're going to treat them at any length, you're going to have to make most of it up. Uh, on the other hand, if you're working with, say, Benjamin Franklin, there's an immense amount written both by and for him <laughs> and about him. And so uh, you have no excuse for treating him badly, so to speak, or making up too much stuff about him. I mean, you can put him in a different place than he was known to have been, but he should act like himself while he's there. Likewise, George Washington, you know, we, we do run into George Washington uh, once or twice in the course of the most recent uh, book written in my own heart's blood. And um, so he was quite possibly not in, the, in the, the first of those places. He's having a meeting somewhere in a small shack. But uh, he and the other um, revolutionary generals who were with him, there's a fair amount written about them. I could find pictures, you know, paintings of what they all looked like. I could describe them quite well. And as far as uh, Mr. Washington went, he was a, a very good writer. He wrote a lot of stuff. It was possible to get a good sense of him from what he wrote, as well as from what people wrote about him. So even though he appears only briefly, you know, what I said about him was entirely accurate in terms of the information that's available about him or from him. I would not have felt uh, felt right in, uh, you know, having him swear, for instance, because he really didn't. And, uh, or, and you know, I would uh, not have described him in, uh, in detail that was contrary to what's known as his looks or his behavior. Uh, other people like General Charles Lee, there's a lot of stuff written about him and much less flattering. But by the same token, I didn't go farther than what is written. That's kind of my baseline for historical people dealing with them is that I may use them in a fictional context, but I will never show them to uh, do anything worse than what I know they did. So some people, you know, are, are just, you know, bad actors to start with. Others are not so much. And um, how you treat them, it's it's going to come down to imagination in some instances. But if they were a real person, then I think you owe it to them and to their memory and to their descendants, perhaps, uh, to do the best you can in describing them more or less the way they were, as close as you can get. Beyond that, though, in terms of cultural context, uh, there's so much variation in any culture, even a very small and circumscribed one, that even though people will say to me sometimes, well, but they wouldn't have done this, you know, I can actually point to uh, situations where actually they did do that, you know, and say, yes, by and large, most of the people there, they wouldn't have done that, but this person actually did do that, so I feel perfectly okay in having one of my people do that as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a judgment call all the way along, though. You said something really wonderful, um, which... I was very impressed with when you spoke at the LA Times Festival about what happens when you have gone ahead writing your story and then you've done some historical research and found out that it couldn't have happened the way that you thought, which was, uh, I I'm going to botch how you said it exactly, but you said, well, you just rewrite it. They're just words, um, uh -huh. which I thought was very professional and amazing. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how you work um, the way that you don't use an outline and that you follow the thread of the story. Because I found it really inspiring that you said that when you've spoken to classrooms before and said, okay, everybody close your eyes, how many of you actually like making outlines? Um, and that it showed that most people don't like to work that way. For, so for the sake of anyone listening, um, if you could say a bit about your process and how you proceed with the story. 
Well, sure. Um, I should start, though, by mentioning that people's brains are wired up in different ways. Some people are linear by nature. You know, they, when they're writing something, they really do need to start at the beginning and to know where the end is, at least, and to have at least a reasonable uh, supposition as to what's going to happen in between. Some people don't feel comfortable unless they've written a very, very detailed outline, and then the actual writing of the book is just essentially fleshing out that outline. Um, and there's me, um, and there are many others like me, but uh, frankly, I couldn't write a book that way if, if you had a gun to my head. I, uh, I write in pieces where I can see things happening. I usually have no idea where the beginning of a story is, let alone the end. Those will you know, come along in their own due course. Uh, what I need to start writing on any given day is what I call a kernel, a line of dialogue, vivid image, you know, anything I can sense or see concretely in my imagination. And then I sit down and write a line or two about whatever that object or line of dialogue or whatever it is. And the front of my head is doing the craft work. I'm, you know, pulling words out, putting them back, switching clauses. I'm trying to make that sentence or two be as clear and elegant and, uh, you know, uh, carry the essence of what I'm trying to say as possible. Meanwhile, the back of my head is kicking up questions and saying things like, what time of day is it? How is the light falling? Uh, is it cold in the room? Yes, it is. My nose is cold and so are my feet, but my hands are warm. There must be a fire in this room. Uh, where is it? Oh, it's over there. There's a dog by the fire. I've never seen him before. And, you know, that kind of stuff is just going on in the background all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, and so some of that stuff will bubble up into the front part of my mind as well and be added to what I was thinking, you know, when I was writing that first sentence or two. And so I begin to flesh out where I am. I begin to realize where I am who's talking to me why did they say that you know what's going to happen next well I have no idea but uh, oh somebody came into the room who is it <laughs> and that sort of thing um, so it's very very slow and very painstaking I don't write drafts at all I write uh, as I go you know I fiddle constantly take words out put them back move things around uh, by the time I've finished a scene which will take two to five days depending on the length of the scene I will have been through it literally hundreds of times, if not thousands. But when I'm done, it's as good as I can make it at that point, and I will leave it and you know go look for something else to write. Um, so I do this for you know months while I'm just you know doing the research concurrently, pulling kernels out of the research, or you know just out of the back of my head as I'm thinking about things. I'm thinking, oh, this is why that happened, and then I will write that down. I don't know what comes before or after, but I have that. And so we go backwards and forwards. And, you know, gradually the little pieces begin to kind of grow feet and creep toward each other, float through the air and land on top. It's like playing Tetris in my head, but very slowly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, some people work this way and a lot of people don't. And that doesn't mean my way is better than theirs or vice versa. It's just, you know, it's, it's how, how is your brain worked up? How, what lets you get words on the page? Anything that lets you get words on the page is the right way to do it. So, you know, I'm, I'm very piecemeal, uh, what I call a network writer. Other people who are linear refer to this derogatorily as a pantser. You know, you're a pantser. <laughs> you're flying by the seat of your pants and obviously getting a product, <laughs> which, which is um, what you would expect, uh, which is actually not true. Uh, the thing is that they teach everyone in elementary school to do it the other way because you can force a person who thinks like I do to look like they're doing it linearly. In other words, you can force the average fifth grader to write an outline and a topic sentence and all that jazz, whether they want to or not, and they'll get something coherent. You cannot uh, get a linear person to do it the other way, and they're just not they're not wired to do that. And, uh, and you know, the thing is that it doesn't matter how you write something. It only matters how it looks on the page. And, you know, it is words on the page. You write something, you're not happy with it, back up and change it, you know. I change things all of the time. Uh, and, you know, you don't 
give it to anybody else until you are happy with it. Absolutely. I think, I just think that's so inspiring because I do think there are a lot of kind of preconceived notions about what the writing process is supposed to look like in quotes. And whenever I hear someone who has strong experience and has had great success doing it their way and really being loyal, just like you said, your responsibility is to the book um, and the responsibility is to your process. I think it's so important that people know about it in case anyone is feeling like, oh, I can't make an outline, therefore I'm not allowed to write a book. I know, that's so that's so common, and I, I've never quite understood why people think that, but uh, but they do, you know, they think there is this, there's only one way to be a writer, and, you know, they'll get a book on how to write, or they'll take a class, and that teacher or that book will explain the right, the right way to write a book, which is the way that that person would write a book. They don't ever tell the class that there are many, many other ways to write a book, and this might not work at all for you. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's, it's what gets words on the page. Um, People don't actually teach writing in a way to uh, get words on the page most of the time. I think they do more these days than they used to, but it used to be, you know, you're going to do it our way. And this led to a widespread supposition that, you know, there is a way to write, and there's not. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about your process, about the life and times, I'm sorry, the life and adventures of Joaquin Marietta and its place in history And just thank you so much for talking about writing. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.